This is a CBC podcast. How intense was this sitting of Parliament? Very. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely consider it was a very intense one. You can hear it in my voice. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it was something. MPs will tell you, this sitting of Parliament was a lot. I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, the Israel-Hamas war shook Parliament and the world. Canada's defence minister on his government's new call for a ceasefire. Why now? And making sense of why the House of Commons has been so intense lately. I think things were very toxic in the House. It's concerning. I think uh, we're getting further and further down the road in terms of actually obstructing basic parliamentary work. Canadians are hurting. This government doesn't realize it. And that's why it's intense in the House. And uh, you've seen it in the polls. I think this session was um, feisty. At the same time, we got a lot done. Was this sitting feisty or just chaos? Two Ottawa watchers try to sort that out. Also, how to stop a scam that leaves victims with surprise bills for thousands of dollars. Will one province's efforts to plug a legal loophole work? Let's get started with Canada's shift on the Middle East. The House is now in session. With the future of Israelis and Palestinians in mind, Canada is joining the international call for a humanitarian ceasefire. For the first time, the government called for a ceasefire in the Middle East this week, a marked change in tone as the death toll in the over two-month-old war continues to rise. Why did the government change its position? Bill Blair is Canada's defence minister. We've reached him in Latvia, where he is visiting Canadian troops operating in the region as part of a NATO mission. Welcome back to the House. Thank you very much, Catherine. So let's start with the Middle East, Minister. Your government called for a ceasefire, but on October 24th, you were asked about a ceasefire and you said, quote, I have no expectation that a terrorist organization would respect international law or any call for ceasefire. Has your opinion about Hamas changed? No, it is not. Hamas is a terrorist organization. Hamas started this terrible conflict with a a terrorist attack on uh, innocent people in Israel. They killed over 1,200 people. They've taken many hostages. There are still over 130 hostages still outstanding. And I do have no expectation that Hamas is, is an organization. And I think, Catherine, I'd draw your attention to the statement that that our government put out in partnership with Australia and New Zealand, in which we were very clear that, that the conditions for which we would have to be met for a ceasefire to, to be effective would be for the hostages to be released for Hamas to disarm and, and surrender, and, and that there be certain security guarantees on behalf of, of the state of Israel. And at the same time, that our statement was very clear as well, that we recognized the terrible human cost that, that has been afflicted upon innocent Palestinian civilians. Minister, three weeks ago, you said this was impossible. So are you just calling for something that you believe is, is impossible? No, ma'am, I am not. I was very clear on October 24th, when asked about this thing, I, I think I was very explicit, that Hamas was a terrorist organization, that they had perpetuated a terrorist attack on the state of Israel. They'd killed innocent people. The, the recordings and the sexual violence that took place as well is absolutely horrendous. They kidnapped over 200 people. A number of those people have been released, but there are still many still outstanding. I, I believe that Hamas needs to be eliminated as a terrorist threat in the region, and additionally, I have very little expectation that a terrorist organization will respect a ceasefire. But at the same time, we are seeing an unacceptable amount of 
innocent civilians being impacted by this conflict. And it's why our government has called for a ceasefire with certain conditions. And that, that includes the, the return of the hostages and the elimination of Hamas as, as a threat in the region. Why now? The death toll has been growing week after week. Why wait until this moment? You know, I, I believe that Israel does have a right to defend itself. But our government and, and frankly, Canadians right across the country have been expressing concern about the loss of innocent life. First of all, the loss of innocent life that occurred on October 7th with so many innocent Israelis that were murdered and then kidnapped as well. And, and we have all been equally concerned about the loss of innocent life. Um, while the, this conflict has uh, played out over the last number of weeks, and, and, and I think there is a, a very legitimate concern that, that we want those hostages returned as quickly as possible and safely. And we also want Hamas to, to surrender and, and to submit. Frankly, they, they need to be held account for the terrible crimes that they committed. Minister, some of your colleagues uh, within the Liberal Party have said that they do not believe that the UN vote was one that Canada should have supported. I'm thinking of people like Anthony House, father. They felt that it put undue burden on Israel, did not do enough to call out Hamas. Do you share those concerns? I, I think Canada's vote in, in the UN has to be taken in the context of the statement that we put on in exactly the same day, in which Canada was very clear in our condemnation of Hamas, condemnation of the terrorist act that they perpetuated. We called for the release of all hostages, and we also ca- called for a cessation of hostilities, a ceasefire in order to protect innocent civilians. But it was it was conditional in our statement on Hamas surrendering and ending that, that terrorist threat that in Israel still faces. And unfortunately, I don't think the vote as clearly articulated that if it's not taken also in the context of the statement we put out. You believe that's a problem? You said unfortunately. Well, I, I can see the concern that it's raising among Canadians across the country and among some of my colleagues. I would just ask that they would look very carefully at the statement that that was very thoughtfully crafted by our global affairs minister and by our government that, that I think clearly articulated Canada's very principled position, that Israel had a right to defend itself, that we wanted to see those hostages released our statement condemned Hamas in, in, in very strong terms and called for them to lay down their arms. But we also called for a, a ceasefire in order to uh, protect innocent civilian lives. And, and I think that was a very principled position that most Canadians can agree with. Okay. I'd, I'd like to turn to Ukraine. Um, President Volodymyr Zelensky, as you know, was in Washington trying to unlock billions of dollars of military and economic aid. That didn't happen during his visit. How pivotal is that U.S. decision for the future of that conflict? Well, I, I think the decision didn't happen during the President Zelensky's visit, but that's still very much an ongoing discussion within the U.S. government. I happen to be in Europe today. I'm in Latvia working with our NATO partners here. Um, there has been a considerable discussion, and I met with a number of Ukrainian soldiers who are actually training with Canadian Armed Forces members here in Latvia. And we talked about the support from Canada for Ukraine. We talked about the support in NATO with some of my NATO partners here in Europe. And and I believe in all my conversations with um, officials from the, the U.S. government uh, executive that they're very strong and they're supportive of Ukraine and, and, and will continue to make the necessary supports. They're obviously going through some, some political process. But my question, sir, is whether or not it's pivotal to the conflict. I take your point that the U.S. officials you are meeting with are all on side with Ukraine getting this funding. My question to you is, does this make or break 
Russia's war on Ukraine, what the U.S. decides here politically. Let me be very clear. NATO, which includes, of course, the United States, they're the leading voice on this. And, and their leadership has been exemplary and resolute. From all the, all the time that we've been dealing with them, I believe that all of our allies are, are strongly in support of Ukraine. No, I've not seen any evidence of, of wavering of, of that commitment. At the same time, we're all dealing with you know, various electoral and, and, and political processes within our own governments at this time of the year. But no one should misconstrue some of those political processes to suggest in any way that there's been any lessening of the support that our allies, including the United States and the European Union, have for Ukraine. I do want to talk about Canada's support. The Canadian government has committed over $2.4 billion in military assistance to Ukraine since the war began. It has been suggested it could take years to replace some of the weapons that were given away. Does Canada really have the capacity to provide substantially more military aid to Ukraine at this point? Well, just to be clear, we've acquired munitions that Ukraine has asked for and, and, and required. We've worked very closely with the Canadian Armed Forces. Some of the munitions that have been provided were surplus in the Canadian Armed Forces, and so we've provided them to Ukraine. But in the funding that, that we announced for those munitions, uh, it includes money to replace that. Now, now, the procurement processes for replacing some of those munitions unfortunately is lengthy and it's something I'm, I, my job is to work through that and get that done as quickly as possible. Do you concede it could take years, sir? Because there was one official who, who said that publicly. Well, I, I think there's a real opportunity here because as, as we are replacing uh, those munitions that we provided that were surplus to our requirements, but and you know we, our ally is in a shooting war in the Ukraine, and so we, we provided those munitions to them because they needed them right away. But as we replace them, it gives us an opportunity to update and upgrade the munitions of the Canadian Armed Forces. And, and that's our responsibility. We've got a lot of work to do. And, and I, I, you've heard the Chief of Defence and, and many of his, his staff talk about some of the challenges that they're facing with reconstituting the Canadian Armed Forces. I do want to get to that, Minister, but my question to you is how long will it take to replace the, commi- the equipment? Do you concede that it would take years? There was one example cited in Canadian Army today by a senior member of the military who said, one piece of equipment that the howitzers to get it to get new ones the next line that's not until 2028 we're talking five years it, it can take a long time to procure for certain munitions for example globally that those challenges exist for all of our allies but we are working very hard to improve those supply chains and move as quickly as possible to get our military the things that they need. And one of the, the things that I hope you're going to ask me about is I'm in, in Latvia today and we've announced a number of things that we've brought to our enhanced uh, forward presence that Canada is leading here in Latvia as part of NATO. And we've brought new equipment, new, new missiles that we've just acquired, portable anti-armor missile system, four Griffith helicopters. We're also deploying medium-range radar capabilities and we've just delivered 15 Leopard uh, tanks uh, here in Latvia. And, and that, we're not giving those away to another country. They're going to be used by members of the Canadian Armed Forces as part of our lead in, in the brigade that is going to be stationed here in Latvia. I want to ask you about some important reporting by our colleague Murray Brewster. He has Canada's top military operations commander speaking to him, saying the military is being called on too often to respond to domestic emergencies like fires and floods. Do you agree that that is something the Canadian Armed Forces are being asked to do too frequently? Well, Catherine, I would, I would simply point out that last year, Canada experienced the worst wildfire season in its history. The amount of fires that burned in, in provinces right across the country. Canadians needed help. The provinces asked for our assistance and we provided the assistance that was available to us. We did call upon the Canadian Armed Forces and God bless them, they did an extraordinary job for us. 
but it was an extraordinary year of, of unprecedented demand. And we are working very closely with the provinces and territories to make sure that we can manage those demands more efficiently in the future. I'm not, I'm not sure that that answers the question of too much demand, sir. Uh, we are right out of time. But if you would like to say whether or not you agree with that, that military commander too often or not. We called upon the Canadian Armed Forces when they were needed by Canadians. If Canadians need them, I can't say that that's too often. We'll be there when Canada needs us. Okay. Thank you very much for your time today, Minister. Thank you very much. Bill Blair is the Minister of National Defence. Spies aren't known for calling attention to themselves, but the head of Canada's spy agency is speaking out. In a rare interview with the CBC, David Vigneault talked about the challenges facing CSIS. And there are a lot. Allegations of election interference by the Chinese government, allegations India's government was involved in the killing of a Sikh activist in BC, and on top of that, internal issues. Whistleblowers claiming a toxic workplace and alleging they were sexually assaulted by a senior officer. The CBC's Catherine Tunney spoke with Vigneault about all of it. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. Okay, so a lot of pressure on CSIS, Kat. When you spoke to David Vigneault, what is the sense you got from him of CSIS's ability to deal with all of it? He really kind of laid it out that CSIS is being challenged right now. That's one of the words that he used and that their abilities have been diminished really significant comments that are coming at a significant time. And I was meeting him in Winnipeg to do this interview right before he gave this public address where he also had to acknowledge these horrific sexual assault allegations that the service is dealing with right now. And I had to ask him, you know, when you are dealing with these internal issues, is it having an impact on CSIS's ability to confront everything else on the national security front? And here's what he had to say. As a custodian of the public good, in this case being you know, the intelligence service of the country, I personally and all the leaders in our organization have responsibility towards Canadians and toward our staff to make sure that we are not only discharging our critical mandate in the best, most effective possible way, but also in a way that entrusts confidence. And this is why uh, we're here today to make this speech to essentially have the uh, level of humility about, you know, our, uh, our shortcomings, but also to tell Canadians very clearly how we are accountable and what steps we're taking to improve things. Now, he did talk about shortcomings there. And the service is being scrutinized on a lot of levels. I think most visibly, the recent allegations that came out of the United States, the court documents laying out this thwarted, alleged plot to assassinate several people, uh, Sikh activists, when in fact in Canada, there was a Sikh activist, Hardeep Singh Nijjar, who was killed. And people are asking, well, why was Canada not able to stop this plot? What did he have to say about that? He said he wasn't able to discuss a lot of the details, given that there's still, you know, this criminal investigation. But he did tell me that he actually did learn things about the case reading that U.S. indictment when it was unsealed, although he did caution about speculating whether, you know, that information that he learned ultimately would have made a difference in this case. But he did emphasize fundamentally that what happened is quite serious. It's unacceptable that the Indian government was engaged in the murder of a Kenyan on Kenyan soil. And we absolutely need accountability of the uh, Indian government. And as a democracy, we expect them to be able to uh, live up to the rule of law. It is not going to be a a positive thing for India if there is not an ability for them to account for the actions of individuals in their country who have engaged in in, the act of uh, extrajudicial killing in Canada, uh, a fellow democracy. Okay, what about the other 
big public question of foreign interference that we talked so much about this year, the allegations of election interference involving the government of China. What did he have to say about that? You know, he he did paint a picture of just how far CSIS believes that foreign interference is reaching across the country, not just here in Ottawa. What I can tell you is that our intelligence and the intelligence of our partners is very clear. The People's Republic of China and the Communist Party of China have a multi-pronged effort to try to influence the activities and actions of people around the world. And that includes uh, politicians at all levels of government, federal, provincial, and municipal. Also includes uh, First Nation. First Nations. Yeah, he raised that also in his public address that he gave later that afternoon. And I think this is something to watch, especially in the context of Inuit communities in the north and China's interest, their known interest in critical minerals and, and getting their hands on that and how they're using foreign investment kind of as a backdoor. You know, I know from previous reporting and, and talking to ITK President Natan Obed, CSIS has gone up to the north and they've been trying to sound the alarm and issue these warnings. Although Obed said because CSIS is so limited by its act about what information it can share with people outside of the federal government, that ultimately those warnings, there's not much they can do with them. So you talk about the CSIS Act, and in fact, CSIS has a big ask for the government right now. They want the act updated, basically governs how the spy agency works. What specifically are they looking for? This is really where Vigneault kind of emphasized how challenged CSIS is and, and how they really are quite desperate for more powers. You know, one of the areas is that communication piece that we just talked about. There's also lots of concerns from Vigneault's perspective about how CSIS can handle data. Here's how he framed it. With technology changes, our ability to collect foreign intelligence has diminished. And that is, uh, in the context of geopolitical tensions, it is critical that we regain that. But also, one a very concrete example, back in the day, if you had a, a, a phone number, we could use the phone book and see what was the name associated with that phone number. Now with IP protocol and IP addresses and social media communications, we have to do more intrusive power to do that. It is pretty striking to hear the head of CSIS say that our ability to collect foreign intelligence has diminished. Yeah, I think it is going to set off alarm bells. That being said, though, civil liberty groups and, and people from communities that perhaps have historically been targeted by CSIS are also going to have concerns about giving the spy agency perhaps too many powers. So the government has launched public consultations about whether the CSIS Act should be updated. You know, this conversation is going to spill into 2024, um, and we'll have to see what happens. The CBC's Catherine Tunney. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up on the House podcast, the idea was to build back better after the pandemic. So why are food banks seeing more need than ever before? How to fix it? Coming up in about 20 minutes. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to the show that helps you make sense of the political decisions that affect your life. A new episode of The House drops every Saturday. Remember, you can find news and interviews on our website. It's cbc.ca slash the house. When people come around and they promise this and promise that, if it sounds too good to be true, it is. People are out to scam you, and they will. I wish I had somebody with me to consult, to say, Ian, stop this. My wife had died a couple of years before, and she wasn't there to help me put the brakes on it. Seniors and newcomers are among those falling prey to scams involving everyday equipment like furnaces and filters. 
Victims get drawn in by high-pressure sales tactics and unfulfilled promises, only to find out that in some cases, they've had liens attached to their homes. Some wind up paying thousands of dollars to get rid of them. One provincial minister says what's happening almost amounts to blackmail. As Ontario looks to get tougher on stealth property title liens, CBC's Christian Poslang reports on whether the new rules will be tough enough. Yeah, this is the water filter. It's right there. I, I guess it's a, a reminder to myself that, uh, you know, it's, a, it's one of those mistakes that I made. It's a mistake that cost Abel Chang a lot of money. The Ottawa man says door-to-door sales reps promised that by renting their water filter, he'd qualify for a government rebate, lower his monthly bills, and end up saving money. That never happened. But the worst was yet to come when two years ago, he went to refinance his mortgage. The paperwork comes in, well, actually, we can't do that because you have to clear the lien. And I say, what do you mean? They say, actually, they put a lien on your house is basically for this water filter. I'm like, how can you do that to, to put a lien on someone's house, right? Chung didn't know that the water filter rental company had registered what's called a Notice of Security Interest, or NOSI, on his property title. A NOSI is like a lien. Registered against the land title, it shows the company has a financial interest in a piece of equipment on the property. In Chung's case, water filters similar to the one he'd rented cost around $1,000 to buy online. But to make the nosy go away, Chung had to pay a lot more than that. $11,000. That was, uh, I felt really bad when I found out that I have to pay the $11,000 to clear the lien on the house. I felt at that point is like, I don't get any help from anyone. And I felt like those companies, they can actually do these things and get away with it. The company involved in Chung's case didn't reply to a request for comment. But in previous inquiries from CBC said the allegations against them are unfounded. April Chung is far from alone. The problem comes in when the homeowner tries to remortgage or sell their house. Their lawyer would tell them, hey, there's a lien on your house. And this is almost always the first time the homeowner is hearing about it. Dennis Crawford is a lawyer based in Stratford, Ontario. He deals with dozens of cases like Chung's a year. Over 38,000 nosies were registered in Ontario last year alone. Not all of these are trying to abuse the system or lead to costly payouts. But Crawford says there's no question there's a problem. So they're shocked to find out they have a lien on their house. And then the finance company sends the buyout statement, which is for orders of magnitude what the equipment is actually worth. So typically in this industry, I would see a buyout statement for a furnace in the realm of $12,000 to $20,000 to buy out a furnace that new would cost $3,000 or $3,500. Homeowners who feel they've been taken advantage of can report fraud to the Ontario government or hire a lawyer to take a company to court. But Crawford says many don't have time to go through that lengthy process. They have to get the lien off title before the closing of their house sale. So they don't have time to dispute this with Consumer Protection Ontario. They don't have time to take the finance company to court and ask the court to delete the lien. The finance company really has them over a barrel, and they really have no choice but to pay out 
the lien in whatever amount the finance company is asking for. One of Crawford's clients had liens totaling over $100,000 on his property for things like air filters and home insulation. One of the companies involved told CBC that Ian Craig was aware of what he was signing, and the contracts included information about nosies. But the Kitchener resident said he didn't know the consequences of what he signed, and more has to be done to stop the liens. I don't know how they're allowed to make a lien like that. It's just it's unbelievable. They put a lien on your house and you don't even know it. And I think that's disgraceful and that should be changed. The notice of security interest has become a crisis just in the past year. And that's why we've taken action not only to... In Ontario, the provincial Liberal government cracked down on door-to-door sales in 2018. But lawyer Dennis Crawford says the fraudsters haven't stopped and, if anything, the problem has grown. And now the abuse of notices of security interest is at a crisis point, according to Ontario Minister of Public and Business Service Delivery, Todd McCarthy. Often it's a senior or a new, a new Canadian or a Canadian with language barriers or challenges is duped into believing that they have to pay out some exorbitant amount of money. Uh, they'll do so almost in a, as a form of blackmail to get to, to clear up their title, or they'll take out an actual registration or charge or mortgage to pay it off. And uh, th- this is a real concern. The Ford government's revamp to Ontario's Consumer Protection Act has just become law. It's aimed at making it easier and faster to remove a nosy from a home title after a contract has been cancelled or paid out. McCarthy says there will be consequences if that doesn't happen. That can constitute an offence under the proposed Act, and there can be full prosecution under the Act that could lead to uh, prison time as well as fines and some restitution for those victimized. There are still regulations to hammer out before the new law gets implemented, which will take some time. And it won't necessarily stop bad actors from trying to put stealth liens on homes in the first place, according to Ontario lawyer Dennis Crawford. The only surefire fix, he says, is to ban companies from being able to register a notice of security interest entirely. In my opinion, they're not supporting any legitimate commercial interest. They've outlived their usefulness and It would be a lot better for consumers if instead of making it easier for consumers to get these liens off title, just make it so that these liens can't be put on title in the first place. Right now, the power that it gives to the rental companies and the finance companies is totally disproportionate to the interests they're trying to protect. The fact that you own the furnace should not give you the ability to obtain a security interest in the entire house that might be worth $300,000, $500,000 just because you happen to be the owner of a $3,000 furnace. But the government says there can be legitimate reasons for companies to use these types of liens or nosies. If somebody enters into a financing agreement or a lease with respect to, say, a furnace, a company that would have leased or sold that item to a homeowner would be, under the terms of the contract, entitled to register the notice of security interest until the lease payments are completed. That would be a legitimate use of it. The Ford government has been consulting on what specific actions need to be taken to rein in these notices of security interest. What I'm determining through this consultation period is what we can do in the here and the now in terms of addressing the abuse of notices of security interest by the bad actors. And there's a whole range of options that we can consider um, 
and these include the option of complete abolition of, of notices of security interest. While the minister says banning nosies is an option on the table, the opposition NDP wants more. Increasingly, more and more people that I speak to, whether it's lawyers and consumers, who have been harmed by this, refer to these types of liens as nothing more than extortion. The NDP's consumer protection critic, Tom Makosevic, says Ontario needs to beef up consumer protections. He's proposed legislation to create an independent consumer watchdog. I'm calling for uh, a body to exist outside of government that is focused on consumer protection. This exists in, in other places around the world, like in the European Union, where you have the gold standard of consumer protection. And so they would be able to come in, levy massive fines and punishments, and make suggestions to change and improve consumer protection in Ontario. So there's so much that a government can do. Business Services Minister Todd McCarthy says there are some things people can do to avoid the problem right now. Like going online to check if there's a lien on their land title and reading the fine print on contracts. McCarthy says the Ford government will make a decision about how to deal with notice of security interest abuse and whether to scrap them altogether in the new year. We will take action. What that will be out of the range of options, I can't yet say because I haven't decided. And I'd be working in conjunction with the Premier and the Premier's office and Cabinet to determine what actions can be taken early in the new year. But doing nothing is not an option. We will take action to address this, to curtail it, and to stop the bad actors from abusing it. For The House, I'm Christian Poslang. I made a serious mistake. I should have never recorded that video. Not in the Speaker's uniform, not in the Speaker's office, and not for a friend who is an active politician. I am deeply sorry. I want to reassure members that nothing like this will ever happen again. In the words of noted Canadian philosopher Justin Bieber, is it too late now to say sorry? House Speaker Greg Fergus is going to find out just the latest incident in what has been a pretty wild sitting. Let's break it down. Susan Delacourt is a columnist with the Toronto Star. Rob Russo is the Canada correspondent for The Economist. Happy end of sitting to both of you. Hello, Thank Catherine. goodness for the end of sitting. <laughs> As we say around here. Uh, now, Rob, not long ago, Greg Fergus was on this show saying he wanted to restore civility to the House of Commons. He had really high hopes. Then he practically loses his job by making a video fetting a provincial liberal friend, which some people thought was pretty partisan. What's going on here? Um, I think that there were clearly errors in judgment. And um, initially, I was surprised at the reluctance of liberals to openly defend him. I remember Minister Wilkinson was on the air, and he said that he had some serious questions about this. So it was clear that there was some reluctance among his fellow liberals to let him off the hook. I I was surprised, even after his appearance at committee, that the NDP was very, very reluctant, it seemed, to buy what he said uh, at whole cloth. But I've got to say that this does also reflect a tendency in this parliament to go after people for things that are not critical to the functioning of our democracy, to the well-being of our people. I know that a video was unearthed by Liz Thompson at CBC Mm -hmm. about Andrew Scheer doing the same thing. After a while, it just sounds like white noise. And uh, there are some very, very serious issues that that this parliament is going to have to look at in the next year. And perhaps we'd be better well served if everybody learned from this on Mm -hmm. both sides of the aisle. And, and 
thought about tackling those more serious issues. Yeah, we should say the video, um, the story by Liz Thompson was uh, about a fine that Andrew Shearer is going to have to pay for making a partisan video in his office. He's right. obviously not speaker, but I appreciate the white noise point. Um, Susan... Fergus made a statement in the House of Commons on Friday promising to work tirelessly to regain MPs' trust. Can he do that? Do you think he can get that trust back? I'm not sure it existed before this all happened. Mm-hmm. It was Things were pretty rough in that House of Commons before the video. It also is true that after the report came out, the NDP started saying they had examples and could cite them, at least three, but they were and counting, uh, examples of Mr. Shear doing partisan events when he was speaker too. So I think there is a problem with partisanship in the House. I also do think that there was the problem of that MPs back in the day, um, I'm old enough to remember it, actually had friends in other parties. Mm-hmm. And COVID really took uh, did a number on that. So I would say, um, I don't know what would work, but if I were Mr. Fergus, I would spend the next few months making new friends in other parties, uh, having conservatives for dinner up at Kingsmere. Uh, a, a New to, Year's resolution, perhaps, for yes, 2024. Make, make new, new friends. friends. Well, there you go. A little advice from the House this week. <laughs> um, now, this is capping off, Rob, what has been a pretty wild sitting, starting with the Prime Minister rising and making these allegations against India. We had Yaroslav Hunka, a man who fought with the Nazis, apparently, being applauded in Parliament. We had the round-the-clock voting marathon brought on by the Conservatives in the Senate. We had allegations of bullying. From the outside, it probably looks like things are kind of in chaos here in Ottawa. Do you think that that is actually the case? I wouldn't say chaos. I I. I, I don't remember there, uh, very much of the silver era or golden era of witty repartee in Parliament. Mm. There was some when I arrived. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that there was value to going up to question period. But I, I also remember, you know, people jumping over chairs to get at each other in committee and stuff like that in, in, in the 1980s as well. Um, I think some chaos is normal. The coarseness, I think, is what's different now. There is a coarseness to what happens on the Hill that didn't exist before, uh, that I think really is reflective of the era of social media. And Mm. I think that we saw that when we realized how naked it is when MPs essentially make their representations, get up in the House or get up at committee in order to try and have a five or six second clip that they can then go and use to mobilize, monetize. Um, And uh, that, that didn't exist before. I've said this many, many times. I think if we want to change the behavior in the House of Commons, the best way to do that is to allow the cameras to show the behavior in the House of Commons. Uh, And I think that that would clean up a lot of the coarseness, a lot of, quite frankly, uh, there's profanity, uh, although I'm not, I, I'm okay with, with profanity. It's, it's the <laughs> lack of wit that I, that I despair over. And, and as a result, the lack of profound questioning, the lack of real attempt to get any kind of information out of people. Yeah, I like the word Rob used, coarseness, because I really do see the same thing. I, I find myself often watching question period and saying, I didn't know you could say that out loud. Mm. You know, it's it, it definitely goes with social media, and it's happened over the last ten, 10 years, I'd say, which is about as long as Twitter's been around. Mm-hmm. And you really see that things that, that politicians used to say maybe over a couple of drinks in a bar, now they just say them out loud. Uh, I do want to talk about this sudden shift that we saw in the polls in the last week that maybe mean that things aren't 
quite so dire for the Liberals, although still not great. Um, I don't want to read too much into it, though, but does it hint at any change in the mood? Those polls, the polls we're talking about, I guess, is Abacus, um, Mm -hmm. which uh, does polling with us with the star. Mm -hmm. And a few months ago, uh, I did one about, is there any comeback for Trudeau? And is there any way that, you know, he can get beyond what seems to be this real personal antipathy toward him out there. And the one thing that the poll showed, and I don't think we examined it in enough detail, was that there was still a lot of reservations about Mr. Polyev and the Conservatives. That people, liberal voters from 2021, might come back to the party if they anticipated that Pierre Polyev was. Now, I don't want to read too much into these polls either, mm-hmm. but I've, I've heard others. Don Guy um, Polara said, too, that his suspicion was that people are parking their votes with the Conservatives right now, and it's more of a, I just want to get rid of that Trudeau guy. Mm-hmm. But they've had a chance to take a close look at Polyev, too, and I think... I don't think the Liberals should be popping the champagne right now or anything like that. The Conservatives are still 10 points ahead. But the sustained attention on Mr. Polyev the last couple of weeks, I think, has not done him any favors. Susan mentioned that Trudeau guy. Uh, You were speaking to another guy, Rob, who might have aspirations to be Liberal leader one day, which is Mark Carney. And there's been a lot of talk, will he run, won't he run? What is your sense? Does he does he have uh, eyes on that job, which is not vacant right now? We should say. <laughs> right. Um, I, I just want to say one thing about polls because I, I polls was a bit of a mania for me when I was here at the CBC. I, I really do believe that between elections, polls are for incontinent canines. And but that being said, uh, I think that more scrutiny will be coming to Pierre Poilievre in the next year, and he will have to to. Put that into his calculus. As far as Carney goes, I do think he is genuinely torn. I think that he's very, very interested in public service. I think that there is potentially an agreement that could be made between the Trudeau people and Mr. Carney for him to come in under certain circumstances. The people around both Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Carney say that there is a potential deal. I think that he has some uh, interesting criticisms and critiques of this government that will have to be ironed out. Uh, and I think that uh, it would be fascinating to see uh, somebody like him and Pierre Poilievre go head to head on on issues uh, around the economy, which will be front and center next year. Justin Trudeau has said it six ways to Sunday. He's staying. Do you both believe that he will be uh, the liberal leader in the next election, Susan? Oh, I, I'm very bad at predictions. Um, I at the moment, I do. I, I think he really wants to beat Pierre Polyev. But Stephen Harper made that mistake, too. Stephen Harper really, really, really wanted to, wanted to, beat, to beat, Justin beat Justin Trudeau. And look how that turned out. Rob? Um, I think that the Liberal Party's polling constantly to see whether or not he's a drag on his party. And if he's on a drag on, on his party, I think that he would step aside. And until that's determined, we don't know. Okay. Fascinating <laughs> thought to end this conversation on. Thank you both so much for this. And happy holidays to both of you. you Merry too. Christmas to everybody. <laughs> Susan Delacourt and Rob Russo. If food banks are the canary in the coal mine of how we're all doing, the organization that represents them in Canada says that canary is on its last breath. Struggling with record levels of demand, the food banks themselves have some ideas of how to keep people from needing their services. But are governments listening? 
Diane McLeod is the executive director of the Cambridge Food Bank in Ontario. Marjorie Benz is the executive director of the Edmonton Food Bank. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Diane, if we were to visit your food bank right now, what is the situation like there? Well, if you were to visit us on any day of the week, you'd see a very crowded lobby, typically with a fairly significant line of people waiting to get an emergency food hamper. A longer line than in years past, is that fair to say? Yes, much longer. I took a look at the number of emergency hampers we distributed this time uh, last year, November last year, and we were at 9,000 hampers for the year, and this year we're almost at 13,000 hampers. And Marjorie, is it a similar situation for you in Edmonton? Certainly, we've been struggling for about the last 18 months as an organization. What we've seen in Alberta is increased struggles for those low-income people as they pay their rent and their food and other fixed costs. There's just not enough money to go get them through the month. And 75% of the people visiting us and receiving a food hamper are paying full market rent. And so what that means is they're on a very competitive housing market. They're not getting any kind of subsidy in order to pay their rent. And so they pay that rent out. And whatever dollars they have left, they try to make it to the end of the month. And like Diane was talking, we as organizations are really stretched and really trying to deliver programs in a thoughtful, compassionate way. But our numbers are so overwhelming for us. So, for example, we're serving up to 37,000 people each month through our one program. And that's huge. And that's double, over double what it was during the height of the pandemic. And so we're feeling very stretched. Our food supplies are stretched. Our volunteers are working extremely hard. All our partners in the community are working really hard to get food out. And it never seems to be enough to do a good job. Is this sustainable, Diane? You know, I don't think it is. Um, I always try to look at the positive side, and our community here in Cambridge and North Dumfries always comes through for us. But I wonder where is the breaking point? You know, more and more people who used to donate to us are now coming to visit us because they also don't have enough money to get to the end of the month. And so I'm not sure that it is going to be sustainable, to be perfectly honest. Marjorie, you've you've been at this for a long time. How would you sum up how challenging this moment is? Well, I do want to acknowledge that our volunteers have been really troopers in coming and helping us out, and our donors have been generous to us with food and money. It's just not enough resources coming into the organization to sustain this and to keep growing it. Like Diane, I feel hopeful. I try to put that lens on things, but we really are having our challenges um, with maintaining, you know, this level of service and trying to make sure that it's, you know, decent hampers going out and quality food going out to people. And so I don't think I've ever seen it this bad in food banks across Canada. We're all struggling to to this degree. In terms of what the various levels of government could be doing to help address this issue, what do you see as one or two of the most pressing things that need to be tackled? Mostly what I'm seeing is is housing. People are paying 
the vast majority of their income, in some cases all of their income, towards their housing, and they have little to no money left for food. There's one senior woman who um, her husband passed away, and, and so she's um, living on her own now, and, and she has $37 at the end of the month after she pays her rent and utilities. Um, $37? $37 is what she has for food, transportation, um, personal care products, everything, $37. So people who maybe relied on a food bank for an emergency support a couple of times a year when they were stuck are stuck every month now and having to see us uh, pretty much every month instead of just a few times a year. Marjorie, what would you say is some of the most important things that governments could be doing right now to help reduce some of this need? If you're asking what my Christmas wish might be, I would say that it would be for more affordable housing in Canada and a strong emphasis looking at from both provinces and federal governments. How do we get more dollars into people's hands so that they can afford to go and buy their own food and live a quality of life without, you know, scrambling and searching for uh, food from food banks and other organizations? We want to give people options and we want people to be able to make some choices in their lives. And as Diane indicated, when you get $37 left at the end of the month and that's your whole budget left, there's no room for choices. Marjorie, do you feel like politicians are listening? I think they need to come to the table and take action. What we're seeing on the front line isn't sustainable, and a society is only as strong as how we support our most vulnerable citizens. And we need to do more. Come to the table suggests they're not even at the table right now in this conversation. I don't think they're hearing what's happening on a community level, and I don't think they're hearing what's happening to the individuals and families that food banks are serving right across Canada. Diane? You know, I do talk to politicians regularly, but what I typically hear is, you know, this is a either municipality or federal or provincial, like there's a lot of passing of the buck that it's someone else's responsibility. And I think that we need to stop doing that and just get down to work and, and uh, start helping people in our community. I, I think this isn't really political. I think in a sense, it's our leaders, whatever role they have, whether it is in our municipalities at a provincial level or federal level, do need to see how we can work together in a positive way and make some meaningful changes around policy that are going to improve the lives of all Canadians. Marjorie, if these issues aren't addressed in a timely fashion, if we don't see some of these economic pressures easing, what do you see for the year ahead? Um, It it doesn't look really great for the year ahead. As someone who's trying to put a hopeful frame on this, when there is the political will to do something, Mountains can be moved. And we saw that during the pandemic when CERB was introduced quickly, efficiently, whether it was the correct program. It certainly did change what we were seeing on the front line. People could pay their rent and could buy food. And people were more hopeful when they were getting that kind of guaranteed money that they could see. And 
I'm not necessarily advocating for a CERB program. I'm look, saying that we need to really address income security and make sure that there's a minimal ceiling in place that all Canadians can live a life that's, um, they can buy their own food, pay for the rent, and have a quality of life. And right now, we're not seeing that happen. Okay. Well, listen, I really appreciate this conversation with both of you today. And we thank you for the important work that you and everyone in your organizations do. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Cambridge Food Bank's Diane McLeod and Marjorie Benz of the Edmonton Food Bank. That's it for us this week. Next week is our year-end news quiz. It's always a bit of a party. We're packing the studio with Cracker Jack contestants and maybe a surprise guest. You can also test yourself on the year that was, so be sure to tune in or download that episode next Saturday. Our crew on the house is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.